My name is Tom Chick. You are listening to the Quarter to Three Games Podcast, where we talk to the people who make the forum what it is, about the things that matter to them. I am so glad to be here today for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, I want to thank everyone for being supportive uh, of the podcast. I, I think a lot of you listening will know what I'm talking about, and it just meant a lot to me. But I am mostly excited to be here today. Because I am here with Bill Dungsroman, and if you are on quarter to three, you have to know Bill Dungsroman. I mean, good Lord, he's, I think you're maybe our most famous uh, poster, Henry. I, I don't know how you feel about that. And also, I don't know if many people know this, your name is actually Henry, and, and I'm allowed to call you that today. That's correct? That's right. That's right. You said you weren't entirely comfortable with it, but it's okay. I just, I, I just have a strong mental image of you. I've actually never met you, but I kind of feel like I have because, uh, and this will just be the real quick brief period at the beginning of the podcast where I, I sort of uh, am embarrassingly complimentary towards you. We'll get past that and I'll do things like maybe call you a fag or something later. <laughs> right. But you, you're just, you just have one of the most distinctive voices on the forum. And I, I really appreciate that about you. You're, you're a smart, aggressive, funny writer. And when I read your posts, I get a very strong visual image of a guy whose name is definitely not Henry. Uh, and, and I just want to say, if there were ever to be a quarter to three, like, like movie, uh, here, I was thinking about this. The person who would play you, I don't know how you're going to feel about this. Do you know who Peter Sarsgaard is? Absolutely. I love him. Yeah. No, I know you've, I've seen pictures of you and you, of course, look nothing like Peter Sarsgaard. No. But that's, that's the, okay. that's the personality behind kind of the, the, your, your sort of piss and vinegar writing style. And you're like, you're like the asshole guy who's an asshole, but but the important distinction about your particular flavor of assholeness is that you everybody wants that asshole to like them. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, all right. So enough enough of that. Tell me what it's like having the name. Tell me what what it's well. Growing up there, like, apparently, uh, even before I was born, there was an uh, an old radio show. Uh, the main character of it was Henry Aldridge, and the beginning of the radio show was his mother screaming for him to come home. So, it began with Henry. Henry. So you know, growing up, every single relative, friends or relatives, all of them, they all they all yelled at me. That's how they addressed me. That's a pretty obscure one, it seems. Uh, the, the famous Henrys I think of, I can think of two. And at first, I was going to figure, like, Henry's a real nerdy name, and it would suck to grow up with it. And that's true of one of the famous Henrys. But the other famous Henry I'm thinking of really offsets that. And the, the one that comes to mind first is Henry Thomas, you know, like a big-eared, big-eyed, kind of dorky little kid. But then the one who offsets that is Henry Rollins, the fellow from Black Flag. So The thing about the other thing about Henry is uh, uh, the movie industry, just they, uh, it seems to me they despise the name. I mean, uh so very few Henrys, and the ones that are always dorks or they're retarded. Yep, or, literally, uh, literally. Uh, yeah, uh, and I mean, look no further than the Indiana Jones movies, right? He would rather be called the dog's name than his given name, which was Henry. That's right. That's, right. That's right. Henry. Okay, okay. Uh, now let me throw this at you: Are you in real life like your persona on the forum? What, what, what is what's uh, how much is that like you in like your day to day life? Is that how your coworkers, for instance, see you? Uh, well, um, as a manager, my my day job as a manager for a medical office, my employees may see a little bit at, 
of that out of me, but really, most people who know me think that I'm pretty much uh, agreeable, mm-hmm. easy to get along with, uh, for the most part. I do have my own opinions. I do have a uh, fairly aggressive A side that I do express. Um, that kind of comes out that way, but I'm, I'm rarely, uh, you know, verbally abusive <laughs> as I can be online. And now, how do you know how to write as well as you do? I have been uh, reading, and I mean, I've been reading all my life, but but also writing. I began uh, writing fiction uh, back in uh, as early as junior high or even before that. Um, I mean, nothing uh, really noteworthy, but, I, you know, I wrote an entire novel uh, in junior high. I wrote uh, two more in high school. I've always been an avid reader and always enjoyed writing. Wow. So what were, can you tell me about those novels? What? Do, uh, uh, sure, sure. They're, they're, I mean, they're horrible. I mean, I, the <laughs> first novel I ever wrote was a, 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 a mishmash of uh, uh, Battletech, um, The Thing, and um, uh, what was the other? Maybe a little bit of Stephen King thrown in there. It was just horrible. But <laughs> I sure had fun writing, and it was a nice diversion. Uh, I took creative writing in high school, and about halfway through the year, my teacher uh, pulled me aside and he said that he knew that the assignments were just not challenging for me. So uh, he asked me what I wanted to do, and I said, well, I'd like to write a, a novel. And he, So he let me do that instead of doing any of, the cl- any of the classwork. And I wrote something that, honestly to say, is pretty much a dead cross between uh, Twilight and Harry Potter. Oh, Henry, if only uh, marketed that. <laughs> only. But it was still, it was, again, it was awful. It was, and I, I mean, you know what a Mary Sue is. It was, it was so painfully Mary Sue. It just defied belief. But um, I had fun writing. And the funny part was that teacher that I had actually uh, quit. And so uh, they replaced him with another teacher. And I had not done any assignments for, oh, you know, more than half a year at this point. And so the teacher called me up the front and said, I noticed that you were getting straight A's. And then you haven't done an assignment since, so, you know, the middle of last fall, which I, I explained it to her, of course, what I was doing. And she let me continue. Ah, okay. I thought it was going to be a story like where you're the undercover cop who only <laughs> one handler knows about him. And then that handler either gets killed or retired. And so nobody knows the guy's a cop anymore in his cover. And he's lost under his cover. So, okay. The thing was, the original teacher was, a, he was kind of a younger guy. And the replacement was an older lady. And she flipped through and... uh I mean, you know, I, I was just allowed to write whatever I wanted, so there were very explicit sex and violent scenes in there. And fortunately, my handwriting was so terrible, she couldn't read. I don't think she could read a word of it and just uh, let me go and continue on. Now, may I ask, and, and I ask because you mentioned your handwriting, nobody younger than a certain age has ever written anything out in handwriting. Uh, how old are you? Uh, 38. Okay, so so you are, were just at the cusp of, you might have even used a typewriter at some point. Would that Absolutely. Be- Absolutely used to use typewriters to type up my, my school papers, uh, graduated to a word processor. Although um, I did, uh, my class did get an Apple IIe when I was in the fifth grade. Uh-huh. And, yeah. What Was all this in Vegas? Uh, yeah, I was uh, born and raised in Las Vegas. And I've, I've lived here my entire life except for uh, two years of medical school. I had to go up to Reno, which is just, you know, Las Vegas' you know, country bumpkin brother, essentially. Now, what is it like living in Las Vegas? Actually, here, let me throw this at you. Uh, 
everybody knows what Las Vegas is like from various movies and whatnot. Sure. So is Las Vegas, let me, let me list uh, these four things, and I want you to tell me which is the most accurate portrayal of Las Vegas. Are you ready? Yes. Uh, Hard Eight, Leaving Las Vegas, Swingers, or Dead Rising 2. <laughs> wow, those are some choices. <laughs> A lot of times it feels like Dead Rising 2, but... Um, uh, there are, I mean, there are parts, leaving Las Vegas, um, which, by the way, the, the opening shot uh, where Nicolas Cage's character uh, uh, runs into, and I guess is, is, is propositioned by or propositions uh, Elizabeth Shue's character, was filmed um, on the sidewalk in front of Bally's uh, Hotel. Uh, we call them hotels. We never call them casinos. Casinos don't have rooms, you see. Ah. It's any of the big, the big joints. We call them joints, too. And it has to be a hotel. But uh, the camera was set up so that it shot from as if uh, the camera was set inside the, maybe the parking lot of Bally's and shot so it was across the street was the backdrop. And that, that uh, hotel was the Barbary Coast. And I worked there for 10 years through high school and college. And I remember when they shot that movie. Um, so, and then the themes in the movie itself, um, there are a lot of people in, uh, that end up coming to this city uh, to, to, to get away from their problems, of course, they always end up following them. So, uh, I mean, I, I've been aware of several dysfunctional relationships, maybe not to the extent the movie portrayed, mm-hmm. but uh, very much so. And then, and then after that, I did like um, the, Vegas, the Vegas sequence of swingers. Uh, uh, of course, they had to run the montage, which is completely disjointed. <laughs> uh, no one gets the montage right ever. I mean, they start downtown, and then they end up on the Strip, and then they drive by the Hard Rock Hotel, which is neither downtown nor on the Strip. But uh, aside from that, my, my favorite parts were uh, when they first are headed out there because, you know, they're all like, Vegas, baby, Vegas. And then, you know, it's obviously a transition to an hour later, and you're just bored stiff because the drive is just, just <laughs> mind-numbingly boring. Um, but And then the other part is they're in the casino, and because they don't really have money, I mean, they're not rich, um, and, you know, the, the, the staff and – the hotels really don't care who you are unless you're extremely wealthy. So mm-hmm. I like that part of it, too. And now, so all facetiousness aside, though, what is what is it like living in Vegas? Uh, it, I presume all that stuff that, you know, we see in the movies, you know, all the casinos, hotels, whatnot, that's not part of your day-to-day life. Vegas actually has an actual town and houses and people with jobs. Yes. Uh, is, is there anything distinctly Vegas-flavored about that part of living in Vegas, or is it just like a city in the desert? Well, uh, we do take the benefit from the fact that so much of our town is 24 hours mm-hmm. that that extends to, to most things. I mean, there's still plenty of nine to five type uh, occupations, businesses, but I mean, it's, it's, you know, any convenience store, any, there's, it's impossible to drive in any segment of the town where something is not open 24 seven. That's just the way it's, you know, it's just the way it's done here. So you get used to that. I mean, there's no such thing as last call here in the state. <laughs> I get that. So bars, like, don't close at 2. That's not a part of, wow. And as a matter of fact, bars, any bars that have gaming in them, you know, they have. I mean, you sit at, at a bar, and there's a poker table at the bar sunken into the, you know, an electronic poker table. It's, it's, it's more often than not. Uh, but by law, they can't close. So they do always have to stay open. Uh so you've always got, I mean, you, there's just no such thing as last call. It's so easy to lose track of time in Vegas uh, as a result of that. Now, when you say by law they can't close, do you mean any place that has a, some sort of gambling accoutrement is not allowed to, to close? As I understand it, yeah, as far as I know, unless something has changed, 
that is one of the gaming laws is, is uh, you have to stay open 24 hours. I'm not entirely certain of the reasons for that. The only thing I could think of is that, that you can't have someone gambling and then walk up and say, sorry, we're closed. You have to cash out. Ah, right. Uh, right. So, you know, maybe that's just that was why that was put into by the people who lobbied for gaming was to allow that to, to, to keep people. Because the longer someone plays, the greater their chances increase of them losing the money, of course. That's, that's crazy. I mean, next you're going to probably tell me that, you know, prostitution is legal. <laughs> not legal within city limits. Uh, not legal. I don't even believe it's legal in Clark County, the county where you have to drive up a, a pretty far piece north. Oh, really? It sounds like you, you know about that drive? <laughs> I would well, not have. I've had, well, I worked as a bellman through college, so I had to be uh, prepared to recommend uh, that, that drive for other uh, customers. And then, of course, I had the phone numbers available for their free limo service. That is an awesome college job. I, I really was. A bellman. And was this at that uh, Barbary Coast hotel? That you, wow. Oh, my God. I can imagine the anecdotes that came out of that. There was quite, there was quite a few. New, Year, any, New Year's Eve uh, was always special. Uh, when they imploded the dunes, uh, that was pretty special. So, yeah, there's always some things going on. And there's always filming of movies going on. I mean, I remember when they were filming Con Air, um, I, they just shot days and days and days of, of uh, I guess they call them dailies. I don't, I, I don't know. But uh, so they had a little, you know, uh, Cessna airplane just flying up and down the strip and up and down the strip and up and down the strip to film just endless hours of of just backdrop footage for that movie. Now, living in Vegas, do you gamble yourself? Uh, Not to the extent that, of course, uh, some people do. A lot of people can get really caught up in gambling. Uh, I have avoided it for the most part. Growing up around it, uh, most of my immediate family, uh, working in the hotels and and me, myself, you kind of just, there's no novelty to it, so... I kind of um, restrict my gambling as I sometimes will gamble on uh, football, which is funny because pro football is a terrible sport to bet on, but I still do it anyway. And then maybe if I'll out, I sometimes will play a poker machine, but I stay away from the tables uh, and that sort of thing because it's just, you just, you're not going to win. Uh, everybody I know who gambles regularly always, always puts in more money than they ever get out. It's, it strikes me a little bit like, uh, almost like smoking. Like, no matter how much you know about the statistics of it and, and the, the odds and the science behind it. It's something you do in spite of that. I mean, you have to really knowingly disregard the facts of what you're doing to enjoy well, gambling. I'll tell you, Vegas, one of the reasons why Vegas succeeds and continues to, no matter how many other places in the United States uh, have legalized gambling, is that uh, Vegas has designed a system where you don't feel like you lose uh, your money, for the most part, uh, for your average visitor who sets aside so much money, uh, it's it's essentially set up so that you don't you're not aware of how much money you lose because your your mind plays tricks on you uh, to say, well, you know, they give you a lot of free drinks, mm. so this, you know, I, I, you know, this hundred dollars I spent would have gone towards drinks I would have bought anyway. Uh, I got free food. They comped my room. They upgraded my room. <laughs> so all these things in your mind, you apply money you lose towards these, you know, amenities. And then, of course, you probably forgot that, you know, one or two hundred dollars you pulled out at uh, four in the morning after you'd had, you know, several uh, of the strong drinks that they serve for free as long as you're gambling. I, I, I came to this conclusion because, you know, I always ask guests that I checked out how they did. Well, how'd you do? And 95 or more percent of them all said, oh, we, we broke about even. <laughs> <laughs> it's really 
breaking about even with 90% of the clientele, you wouldn't see, you know, you know, 40 story hotels going up all over the place. So. That's awesome. <laughs> now, uh, you, uh, have, if I'm not mistaken, don't you have like a gap between your teeth? <laughs> yes, I do, Tom. I absolutely have had a gap. I tried to fix it several times. I've had, uh, different surgeries. Uh, there's a, um, the piece of skin that, that, Kind of helps hold your front lip to your to your gums. Uh, I've had that removed. The the frenulum there. I've had that removed to try to help. Uh, that's kind of gross. That's that's gross to me. <laughs> kind of gross, isn't it? Yeah, I don't have that. Because uh, I, I wanted to say, I think the gap is is kind of cool. Like I was I was going to tell you, I'm jealous of your gap. I I wished I had had a gap between my front teeth. You know, I, I I got braces, but I didn't wear my retainer. And then if I had gotten wisdom teeth, it would have helped. But then, of course, I'm one of the few people who never get their wisdom teeth because it would have actually been, you know, dental or orthodontically useful. But uh, I appreciate you saying that. It's, it's kind of something you kind of get tired of, you know, growing up. You just kind of would like to have uh, normal teeth like everybody else. You don't like it? You don't like it? I mean, no. isn't it? Isn't it? It's not a charming characteristic. I don't. I don't consider it very charming. No, I'm afraid not. Oh. Uh, can you can you do fun things with it? Like, can you squirt water through it or anything like that? I can squirt water extremely far with extreme accuracy. Absolutely, <laughs> See, that, that is one thing I can do. And does it does it Letterman make a gap in one's front teeth imply that you're smart and funny? I, 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 if that's the implication, maybe <laughs> maybe that's where I got it from. Maybe that's where I got my gap envy from. I, I don't know. <laughs> The downside was in college I had actually had uh, uh, pierced my tongue for a while. Oh, good Lord, Bill. Oh, <laughs> uh, sorry, I called you Bill. See, that was just a reflex. Uh, it was on a bet. I didn't. I, I bet my friend that I, I would not get into medical school, and he said if I did, I'd have to pierce my tongue. So uh, I was able to do that. But I showed him by, you know, dropping out. But uh, <laughs> it was just a ball. Uh, but it. Uh, I, I've been a teacher, too, uh, ever since even college, and it would – Get stuck between the gap. And oh, talking, and uh, my tongue would—it would sound like just my tongue had seized up. <laughs> all would get trapped. <laughs> so, oh, I had to think about that again. Well, let, let's talk about what you've done for jobs, because you said you've been a teacher. This bellhop thing—that sounds so cool too. Didn't you also cart around living organs? Was that not a part of your profession at some point? Yes, after I withdrew from uh, medical school. Uh, I looked at my options, and actually there are quite a few options in the medical field because uh, the first two years of medical school are all the book work and background work. And so with that much uh, added to kind of your resume or CV, it opened some doors for you, you know, things that you would would not normally get uh, if you just had a bachelor's degree in science, as I do. Uh, So there are a lot of other uh, kind of higher professional uh, medical jobs open uh, for someone with that kind of training, so I ended up going to work for uh, the local uh, uh, tissue and organ recovery center, uh, where uh, I was soon promoted to the organ recovery team, which is a, a job that not many people know even exists. They figure when someone dies, they're an organ donor, okay, uh, then the doctor just come in and take them out. But it requires uh, very long hours of you have to determine which organs are healthy enough to transplant. You have to place them using the, the lists. You know, they do make these lists, and you do call them in order by law, uh, and then you have to assemble all the various teams because there's not one doctor who takes out all the organs. There is just a heart team. There is just uh, a lung team. You know, sometimes the liver and kidneys are taken out by the same doc, but sometimes not. You have to get them all to to fly in from around and assemble in one OR, and uh, most cases take anywhere from 18 to 36 uh, hours uh, straight. 
from the time that uh, you are involved with the patient from the time that you actually are leaving the OR with uh, the organs boxed up and ready to go. And in that whole process, what was your role? Uh, my role is, well, you handled each different phase of the uh, um, recovery, where first you, uh, once you have the go-ahead to uh, start the patient as a donor, you run a, a variety of lab tests to determine the health of each of the organs and suitability for transplant. Um, after you do that, that takes, you know, it takes them several hours. You have to monitor uh, and manage the patient, you know, because they're, they're hooked up, they're legally brain dead, but they're still hooked up to a ventilator uh, because the ventilation, uh, keeping the lungs ventilating, uh, keeps will keep the heart pumping for a certain period of time, which allows blood to still get to the organs, which keeps them fully viable. But you have to manage the patient uh, in a variety of ways to make sure that uh, they don't crash. Or you, you're doing this stuff. This is you? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, wow. I just thought you were a guy who carted a, a, a cooler around. Wow, Bill. Bill, there I go again. Sorry. <laughs> uh, okay. no. well, uh, it, I, that must be an odd job because you're kind of with the, I'm going to sound like, it sounds a little soap opera even, but, but you're at the end of one life sort of presiding over a new beginning for another one. I mean, do you, do you, do you have a feeling of, of the importance of that job? Is it just like another job because you've been through medical school and you understand this is just tissue? How, how do you feel in those situations? Well, you have a certain amount of, um, the medical field requires a certain amount of uh, dissociation, Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly felt that way. It's one of the things I, I liked about doing the job was the ability to do exactly as you say. That's one of the few places where you can feel like you can maybe assist in maybe not creating life but help prolong and improve quality of life from, from death or a, a tragedy. Uh, so I did look at it that way. It, I mean, it, it gets to be difficult after a while. You, I mean, your day starts every day essentially with, with someone's uh, what could be their, the worst day of their life up until then because someone very close to them has died. Uh, but then you take it from there, and you, you, you try your hardest to do something. The problem with that job is it is kind of depressing. You do start in a depressing situation, and you're very optimistic about the organs you're going to recover, and then in, invariably you have to start checking organs off the list that you cannot recover because mm. they're not suitable. Mm. You know, and, and, and the ones where we end up, sometimes we've gone all the way through and ended up with nothing. It's, that's very frustrating to, to spend 24 or more hours uh, trying to get someone to get their heart and their kidneys and their liver and to find out that you're not able to get anything. How often is this stuff happening, Henry? Is this something where, like a once a day thing? Are you on call and you only have to work once a week? Uh, How how frequently is this going on? Well, the way way it works is um, you're you're usually going and looking at a case every day of someone who, uh, what happens is they're going to get a cerebral blood flow study uh, to see if they are brain dead. Um, and a lot of the times, there's still just enough blood flowing to the brain. They can't be declared legally brain dead. And typically, the family agrees to take them off life support. But if there's any flow of blood to the brain, they're, they're considered uh, not brain dead, not suitable for transplant. So most of the time, you're looking at several of these cases that have potential. Mm-hmm. But for these legal medical reasons, they, they're not suitable. And then you finally hit on one, and then you have to see well, were they declared brain donors uh, or, or organ donors? Uh, if they were not, we need to speak to the family. Are their family available? What do they think? Uh, and so when I, when I was doing it, we were doing, I mean, we're one to two uh, of the donors a week, uh, some, sometimes more. Uh, depends on a lot of things. You know, one of the things we did was we, 
listen to the radio and traffic reports because if there were a lot of accidents, we knew we would start getting phone calls. So these were mainly traffic accident victims? A lot of times they're traffic accidents, but a lot of times they're, they're, they're people that had some kind of uh, bleeding to their brain. A lot of times they had high blood pressure that they weren't managing. Uh, uh, they had a condition. They had uh, just a congenitally weak um, blood vessel. Our, the blood vessels in our brains are the thinnest uh, anywhere in our body, which is kind of an interesting design. But you have, I mean, uh, one patient is a 23-year-old the mother of one was just taking a shower and it just, just burst and then that was it. Um, but it's a lot of it's, it's, it's accidents of one kind or another. Mm-hmm. Usually, usually, uh, vehicle accidents, sometimes, uh, accidents, uh, gunshot wound, uh, things like this, uh, or, or some other kind of a, a trauma that involved the head. Did you, uh, when you're working, do you get to see much of the end results of this? Or do you, once you've transferred the organs, it's kind of out of your hands and you don't really know how it turns out? Uh, well, that, that is the thing. One of the things that ends up being a, a big con against the job is that you're simply too tired uh, right. to even see the follow-up. I, I, uh, only one time there was a meeting where I did get to go to and I did get to meet a lot of uh, the recipients. Who, who I helped with the donation of the organs. And uh, that was easily the best I felt in the two years that I did the job, was to meet all these people, their, get to experience their gratitude uh, for the job that I assisted in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you, you did this for how long? Uh, the, the organ donation part for about, about two years. Uh, I worked at the, um, for the donation center about a, a year before that as well doing some other things before they put me on that team. And then after that, I did go to work for another smaller company. It wasn't involving organ donation. We kind of were just had to do with supplying hospitals with um, prepared uh, processed donated human tissue. A lot of it is for kind of um, uh, back surgeries or knee reconstructions, uh, these sorts of things. And is where you work now at all related to that, or did you just jump into a completely different type of uh, work? I kind of moved, well, I moved into, uh, eventually was offered a job uh, with uh, a friend of mine who I met. Uh, we, were, we were classmates in medical school, and, you know, she was now a practicing physician. I uh, had partnered with another doctor, and they were running these uh, local clinics here in Las Vegas that are medical clinics, but one of the big things that they specialize in is uh, uh, weight loss. And they were, they have been very successful, and they were opening new offices, and they wanted were interested in me coming aboard to help with that. So I accepted that, and then that's what I've been doing ever since. And you're like a, you're a manager, dude. You're, you're the boss of some people. Pretty, absolutely. I'm pretty much a, uh, a senior office manager, um, and that, that's what I do in my day job is I go in and, I, you know, I kind of call myself one of the, the most uh, uh, highly trained office managers in the clubs <laughs> because very few of them have, uh, I mean, they have managerial or administrative Backgrounds, or maybe they were nurses who were promoted, but very few of them have actually, uh, you know, had gone and gone to medical school. So that that helps me out a lot, and I'm, I'm valued for that. So, so I want to ask you about that job in a second. But first, I want to ask you: when you did the, uh, when you were working in the organ recovery, did you run around wearing scrubs? Uh, exclusively. I, okay. So yeah. How do people react when you're out in the real world? How do people react towards you when you walk around wearing scrubs? Uh, well, I get I would constantly get confused for being a doctor. I guess mm-hmm. it's because I just look like one being. A, I mean, 
uh, it's an assumption. A guy in scrubs, he's a, you know, he's a, a, a male in his 30s and looks otherwise healthy. He's usually often confused for being a physician. Why not a nurse? People don't think like you're a male nurse. Oh, oh no, and that was the thing is, is uh, my friend, um, she would get confused for being a nurse. And she was a doctor. Because <laughs> you know, she's a chick, of course. There's no chick doctors, please. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and how, so that, what I'm wondering is, and so people think you're a doctor, how do, like, I'm wondering, is it almost like putting on a priest's collar? Like, do people act differently towards you? Do, do they sidle up and want to talk to you about things? Do you notice that they call you sir? Uh, what, what's it like running around in scrubs? That I, uh, I don't know. I, I do know that I, uh, there's been occasions, uh, you know, I, when I went, I, the only one I could really think of is I went, um, I was tanning a few years ago. I went to a tanning salon, and the, the, the manager of the tanning salon was very interested in knowing all about me. I think because she thought I didn't see a ring on my finger. I don't know if that really, what, if that is really what you meant, but, um, <laughs> I just love the fact that you open a sentence with, I was tanning at a tanning salon. Lord Henry. I just remember that. Uh, wow. So you've actually said, do you still do that? Are you still tanning? Yeah, I do because it's good for my skin. <laughs> Is it really? Okay, so you know what? You say that, and you've had two years of medical school. I'm inclined to trust it. It's actually good for your skin to do some tanning? It's No, well, see, I have, uh, boy, we're getting personal, but I have um, uh, mild cases of psoriasis, and ah. uh, that is one of the only really reliable treatments for it. So... Uh, You're not advocating then that we all go to tanning booths. No, no, no. If you have no other, if you don't have uh, psoriasis or eczema or a skin condition that's specifically treated by it, I, I don't recommend it at all. But then again, uh, yeah. Well, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Well, by, by, I mean by the same token, you have to realize that yes, the tanning beds are um, a much more concentrated form of the UV lights. Uh, but you, you, if you levy that against, uh, I, I'm just not outside much. I mean, I, I work at my office ten hours a day. And then a few nights a week, I drive over and I teach, you know, and I, I'm indoors a lot. So my sun exposure, even accounting for the uh, twice a week I go tanning, is, is not much more significant than anybody who's actually outside all day working. So, you know, yes, it's, 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 it's dangerous to go tanning. By the same token, it's dangerous to stand outside under the sun all day, too. Right, right. You know. Uh, now, you mentioned, uh, uh, so you mentioned your job now is a, uh, a weight loss thing, and I seem to recall you posting a thread about some month-long diet thing where everything you were going to eat for that month was in some weird bag of supplements or something. <laughs> is, is that, I, I, that would, I didn't keep up with that thread. First of all, was that a joke thread? Second of all, is that related to what you're doing for your job? And third of all, did you actually do that? It is. It, um, it was not a joke. Okay. Uh, it is related to my job. I did do it. I did lose um, almost 10 pounds. Mm-hmm. And I don't have that much weight to lose, so I thought that was pretty good results. Uh, I was a bit disingenuous, which I did admit in the thread that uh, you there there are you are allowed to add uh, lean meat once a day, and as well as vegetables. So it wasn't entirely everything just in the bag. Uh, that was maybe a little bit for dramatic effect, but <laughs> it is it's one of our uh, high protein uh, recommended diets because one of the big things about uh, patients who are overweight is uh, knowing what to eat. There are people who are very nervous about what to eat, what's healthy, and so we've been devising these uh, food plans uh, to help them stick to eating the right things. And what was that month like? It sucked. It was terrible. I mean, yeah. it was, 
the first uh, for, the problem is is that you become your body's addicted to sugar and caffeine and uh, when you cease those things uh, your body crashes hard you get these horrible protracted headaches uh, you have until your body adjusts its uh, insulin uh, glucagon cycles you also get these headaches you also feel uh, mentally disoriented especially in the afternoon and the evening uh, I mean, there's a lot. Your body has to adjust uh, against the diet that we, the diets that we've grown accustomed to having. Yeah, I, I, I just want to say, Henry, I, I don't, uh, I, I don't normally cuss, but it's just a couple of us dudes here. But sugar is fucking evil. I mean, oh. I, I, good lord, I'm not like a super health conscious diet guy, but I, once I sort of tried getting off sugar. I mean, it's, it can be difficult, but good lord, I just I cannot advocate that strongly enough. Fuck sugar, sugar man. Sure, yeah, sugar and anything that is an analog to it, unfortunately. And you know, I got I got uh, into a lot of uh, arguments and have been both on quarter to three and 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 in general in the public is because you know people are offended by the notion that you really shouldn't even be drinking diet soda because they say, well, it has no calories, it has no caffeine. It's, it's just the same as drinking water, isn't it? I mean, there's only a couple <laughs> extra things. Yeah, well, you know, those extra things are uh, these artificial sugars and, you know, uh, these things that keep your body kind of trapped in that cycle of, of needing sugar, uh, uh, activating that kind of pathway in your body. Uh, it kind of helps promote keeping you hungry, uh, mm-hmm. these sorts of things that, that if you were just drinking water or, or, uh, or something would... Uh, you wouldn't have to worry about as much, and yeah, sugar's just bad. So do you just not eat any sugar? Are you one of those kind of guys <laughs> like me? I, I I should be more like you than I am. I certainly should be. Uh, of course, I'm a little bit of a hypocrite, I guess, in that regard. But, uh, <laughs> well, again, it's like gambling or smoking. You know, you could be as intelligent as you want about the facts of something. That doesn't mean you're necessarily going to observe those facts. <laughs> but I stay away from making it a habit, and one thing I do is, is I do go into the gym and exercise uh, pretty rigorously. Not that that really removes the effects of, of eating poorly, uh, but uh, it kind of mitigates at least I'm not, you know, getting my waistline expanded along with eating eating bad. See, the thing for, for me, Henry, is I can't eat just because sugar is so evil. I can't just have I, I just can't regulate myself. It has to be an all or nothing thing. Like, no, I, and I'm just so aware of how my body gets on that whole cycle and that whole craving thing. So it's more because I have such poor self-control about it that I can't eat any sugar. Uh, yeah. So, okay. What, so, uh, you don't, do you drink diet? So, okay, here you go, Henry. <laughs> what was the last, like, sugary thing that you had? Here we uh, are recording on a Wednesday night. I assume you've had, like, a long day at work. Did uh, you have, uh, did you have a Cinnabon or something? I had a, I had, um, a can of Mountain Dew, which, unfortunately, I, I drink more often than not one can almost every morning because I can't drink, um, um, coffee. Well, I can't drink hot liquids. Because um, you pierced your tongue, see what happens. I, my tongue. <laughs> so, uh, I know this is all about my various ailments and defects, but uh, uh, I, from just being in college and, and being in medical school, I uh, had uh, reflux from having a poor diet and drinking a lot of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Kind of did 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 some damage on uh, uh, the sphincter connecting my esophagus to my stomach, so I can't have really hot foods or drink hot liquids. So I, could, I never became a coffee person. Mm-hmm. And uh, I tried switching to tea. It just—it's just, I don't know. I grew up on Mountain Dew. It's one of my one of my last vices that I still can't seem to shake. God, Mountain Dew is wretched to me, though. Oh, it's the I, worst. It's just—it's the worst. It's like it's like you know smoking you know Aricans or those old cigarettes that 
you know, uh, when we were kids that women walked around with that were they were colored brown, like this is what your lungs are going to look like. <laughs> White, right? Uh, it's just like the worst cigarettes you can barely buy anymore or see anybody smoking. It was just, Mountain Dew is really one of the worst things you could drink. And there I go. Again, do, you, do you know the movie uh, Reanimator by any chance? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's what I think of Mountain Dew as. Is it had that <laughs> green, glowy liquid. And I, I can't look at a Mountain Dew without thinking it of that. It looks so unhealthy. I, I, it's just I'm shocked every time I drink one uh, uh, with, like in low light. And then I to see that it should be glowing in the dark. It really should be. It should just look at like nuclear waste. <laughs> Uh, so, all right, so you had a Mountain Dew today. I hope you're, that's fine. Uh, let's see. What uh, My vice, though, is, uh, well, I just had one, is coffee. I'm a huge caffeine fan. And for all of my awareness about, you know, how, how evil sugar is, I definitely, there's, there's an element maybe of self-medication if I wanted to look at, like, the language of addiction or something. But I definitely drive the cycle of my day with with little shots of espresso and i don't you know i have maybe like three in a day so i don't i don't drink a lot of it but i'm so conscious of you know when am i going to have my neck it's like a guy with a cigarette who only lets himself who's a hardcore smoker but he only lets himself smoke three cigarettes a day uh so so yeah you you with your mountain dew i'm the same way with uh with espresso yeah exactly the same way uh all right so uh you have met people on quarter to three, and I understand you've been a very nice host to them out in Vegas. Yes. Uh, who who all do you know on quarter to three that you've actually met in person? And what and what gossip can you tell us about those people? <laughs> well, let's see. I met Sid Bud. Uh, ah, right. Talk about one of the really smart guys on the forum. Yeah. He's like a hardcore scientist, doctor, smart fella. Yeah. Very intelligent guy. Uh, uh, really nice guy. Um, uh his wife has really big boobs. Whoa! <laughs> I mean, I awesome. <laughs> but uh, that's something I can say about him. I'm also a very nice guy. I've met. I um, should I meet in person? I believe I met Jason Cross. Um, uh, back off when he's no longer actually on quarter three. Um, uh, Lloyd Case, who I know, I'm sure you've met in person. Just one of the nicest people you could ever meet. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else have I met? Um, uh, uh, Fire mm-hmm. uh, met her in person. She's she's been out here before. A really sweet, sweet girl. Have you met her since she's had her baby? Have you met her baby? No, I haven't. Have not met her since then, and not, neither have I met her baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, she hasn't been out this way nor I out that way since then. Uh, gosh, who else have I met? I'll feel bad if I forget somebody. Um, do you ever? So have you ever been to LA? Have you ever come out here for like? Uh, you're a gaming nerd for like E3 or anything fun like that? Never. No, no. I oh, and I had tried my hardest to come out this past time, but I couldn't because of work. But uh, I go out there all the time. Actually, uh, not this weekend, but next weekend I'll be down in San Diego, which I go uh, every year in the fall. I go down to San Diego for Comic Con. <laughs> no, Comic Con. That's already. I do know that's already come and gone. Uh, actually, uh, go down. Uh, uh, with my family, and we just stay uh, uh, down there near Ocean Beach, down in San Diego. And I just, I just do nothing. I just uh, read a book and sit on the on the beach from sun up till sundown, essentially, and do absolutely nothing to kind of just uh, re- re-energize myself. You know, Henry, if you lived out here, you could do that every day. I know. I know. You guys don't have that out there in Vegas. <laughs> I'd gotten a job offer a few years ago to to, to move up there, but. 
Um, the problem was was that there I would be making the same out there as I was here, and with the cost of living, that would actually be a pretty significant pay cut. Right, right. So uh, I couldn't quite go for it. Okay, so people in Los Angeles, they go to Vegas, like, for a vacation thing. So people in Vegas, you guys, what, you go down to San Diego, huh? San Diego is, yeah, that's, that, that is a spot. I mean, anywhere around uh, Southern California mm-hmm. kind of kind of works for it. Uh, have you ever been to uh, SeaWorld? Oh, sure. I mean, when I was a kid, I went there a few times. You know, they let adults in, just so you know. Uh, <laughs> unattended without children, that's pretty you know, That's right. You do not have to be attended by a child. Uh, the, one of my favorite places in San Diego, uh, those penguin tanks in SeaWorld. I don't, I don't know. I'm a huge fan of penguins. Penguins are awesome. Uh, and I could sit and watch those, those awesome penguin tanks they have in San Diego uh, for forever. Uh, and actually, last time, I not last time, but I, I remember hanging out with some quarter to three people down in San Diego, and we did that wild animal park thing. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I love that part of San Diego. I mean, oh, I'm yeah. not a like, Disneyland fan or anything, but as far as like national park things, like I love SeaWorld, and I love you're, the down there. You're not a Disneyland fan? I don't think so. I, I, what, how, what, how? I would, I mean... Disneyland is for babies, Henry. Have you been to Disneyland? It's absolutely not for babies. Oh, please. What are you going to do at Disneyland? Everything. There's, uh, you just what? Go ahead. Name one thing. What are you going to do at Disneyland that's awesome? Well, are you going to be semantic and say that they opened the, the Adventure Park next door that has a great roller coaster? Uh, it's got Soaring Over California. Uh, it's got uh, a whole lot of things to do. It's a great thing to go with a with a with a girlfriend too. By the way, mm. uh, it's, it's very date friendly. Oh, you walk. No, no, no. I was going to say I agree with you there, but I, I I just think as far as like if I were to pick like if I were to want to go somewhere for a roller coaster, Magic Mountain. Well, uh, if I were to want to go see something that's enchanting and kind of magical, it would be you know the penguins at SeaWorld or the, the animals at the Wild Animal Park. Disneyland to me, it's all like like marketed. It, it's all dudes in mascot outfits and it's a big old ceramic Dumbo ride, and it's, I, I don't know, maybe I just haven't been in a long time, but I don't i don't think it's magic would work on me. I, I'm with you as far as, like, maybe <laughs> tricking a girlfriend into into going and saying, hey, wouldn't this be fun? But I don't, I don't know. Oh, it's not tricking her. That's what they want. If, if, if you had a girlfriend and uh, you said, well, we can go to Disneyland or we can go to the, the Penguin Tank. I, I mean, nothing against penguins. I think that's, that's great, but uh, they might... A lot of them might be interested in Disneyland. You might might be surprised. Uh, okay, I might give that a <laughs> shot. This girl that I was seeing with the last thing we did was uh, we went to see, uh, and actually I didn't collaborate with her on this. It was like a surprise date. Uh, we have a, an aquarium down in Long Beach, and they had just added some sea otters. Uh, oh, so going out to see the sea otters was like really special, and I think you know she didn't know that was coming. It was a surprise thing, but uh, that like over Disneyland any day of the week. But you might have a point. Maybe if I'd said, hey, do you want to go see cute, adorable little sea otters or Disneyland? You know, I'm I'm an old grump, I guess, about Disneyland, but who knows how other people are. All right. All right, so you, let's let's do some gaming nerd stuff, because everything in this conversation that I've had with you right now would lead me to believe that you're kind of too cool and too busy and have too much real-life stuff going on for, for video games. Uh, I'm not buying that you're into any video games. So, really, not, none whatsoever. No, no, no. Did you play him as a kid? Absolutely. I literally played the the game I first played was literally Pong. <laughs> my, my dad's friend's house. He had Pong, and I played Pong. And then I played the original Oregon Trail uh, text adventure on the Apple IIe, and moved up through playing Zork, the Zork games on the Commodore 64. 
and it just kept going from then and then on. Uh, I've been playing games, uh, yeah, my entire life. You know, to hear you say that, Henry, it makes me think guys our age, uh, we have that sort of shared common experience of, like, discovering video games, and we all played those same titles. But I think of kids nowadays, uh, or people just now introduced to video games, they split up into different genres. They're not necessarily all going to have this sort of shared memory of things like Oregon Trail and, and Pong and, and stuff like that. You know, some of them are Call of Duty, some of them are StarCraft, some of them are Sims, some of them are Farmville or whatnot. Uh, so once video games came and split into all these different types of games, what do you gravitate towards now? I, I think you're like an RPG dude, is that right? That is correct, RPG, uh, uh, good adventure. Well, I'll play good adventure games especially, but I'll play... Um, uh, First-person shooters, depending on on which which kind they are, which mm-hmm. brand, I guess. And I really still am, even though I have a uh, an Xbox 360 sitting here looking right at me. Um, uh, just, I have a difficulty uh, transitioning uh, towards playing on the 360, and I still end up playing primarily on the PC. What's the, now? I, I hear people say that, and I. I am so, maybe it's like the whole thing with the penguin tanks, but I'm so sold on this platform agnosticism. I mean, I'm so at the point now where it almost makes no difference whether something's on the PC or the 360. Well, why is that a, a sticking point for you? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, is, this, is it the, the learning curve with learning to use the, the um, controller? Although I've played you know, several games that I like using the controller, I picked mm-hmm. it up pretty quickly. Um, I'm not sure. It seems like that's just where my comfort zone is. And I don't get to game as much as a lot of people who are avid gamers do by, by any means mm-hmm. uh, as a result of having just a lot of other things going on. Uh, so it's like I end up going with a game that's on the PC. I just sit right down here. You know, a lot of times I've got it. Uh, I've purchased it through Steam. Uh, so there's Steam. You know, I'm just so comfortable with the mouse and keyboard interface that it's, it's something I just slide. It's like, you know, people who uh, snowboarding took over, you know, regular skiing and trying to make that transition took a while for me, too, because it's like, well, I can go up for the weekend and ski on my skis and look like, you know, an old <laughs> fogey or like I'm from, you know, Germany uh, or, or, or I can finally learn how to, to use a snowboard even though I'll be falling down all the time. And it's uh, almost similar like that. It's just the, the kind of things moving on. And, you know, they're just, they do keep making good games uh, on the PC, or at least, you know, uh, there's the PC option. You know, I play uh, Mass Effect, uh, mm-hmm. play those on the PC. A lot of the games that you can play on uh, the, the 360 or another uh, platform, I still end up playing on the PC. So you, you didn't get the memo that PC gaming is dead? Uh, you know, they, they keep coming. <laughs> Uh, have you seen, uh, because I think this might be up your alley, and I've just started playing it, and I'm, I'm curious how it's going to turn out. Have you seen this uh, Amnesia game? Yes, uh, yes, I did. Uh, actually, I've been, it was clued into it by uh, um, one of the uh, people on QT3, Nabil, uh, mm-hmm. very, very uh, nice uh, Indian gentleman who I've been friends with for a while now, clued me into it, and I'm very interested in playing as a demo that I just have to, Finally finished the last leg of Mass Effect 2, and I can finally move on to something else. Oh, good lord! What do you mean the last? Le- oh, they keep making downloadable content that I just keep getting sucked back into. So wait, you've already played it, and you've gotten your little conclusion based on your choices, and now you're going back and doing the DLC? No, it's taken me so long that uh, I still haven't finished it. And oh, <laughs> you haven't even gotten to the end. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, did you do Dragon Age too? Uh, I did. I got about halfway through Dragon Age, and then it just, I just, uh, just kind of lost interest in it. I do want to finish it, but uh, you know, and maybe this is another thing. It's funny you mention that because the fact that they couldn't license uh, the Dungeons and Dragons uh, uh, IP mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. felt so, uh, you know, so much just like a, a copy, but not the real thing, and it just, it felt a little awkward. You mean the, the game mechanics in Dragon Age? Like you feel like yeah. conspicuously the, the absence of the D and D license is conspicuous there? Yeah, I've I've had difficulty with uh, playing role playing games RPG on the computer uh, that are that that traditional fantasy setting that don't have the license from from because I just because I grew up with it. You know, I played it. And I was playing uh, the tabletop D and D when that was pretty much the only uh, role playing game you could play, and then of course that. That uh, Mazes and Monsters movie came out with, with Tom Hanks, his breakout role, right? <laughs> and uh, my mom saw that and, of course, banned Dungeons & Dragons, which made it like 5,000 times cooler to play in my No house. way! Are you serious? You were actually forbidden from playing D&D? Oh, yeah. Oh, my mom. Oh, when she saw that, that movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She, she, uh, she absolutely forbade us from playing that. She was afraid we would lose our minds and think each other, we were, you know... We were kobolds and we would stab each other in our sleep or something like that. Wow! Wow! How long did that last? Did did that did that ever get lifted or was that like in effect forever? No, it it eventually got lifted. There was there was never an actual declaration, but it, it, I didn't get any resistance when I was playing it. Uh, when I got older, I guess by the time you know you become a uh, get into junior high and, and high school, your 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 parents are are just happy that you're you know the police aren't escorting you home. <laughs> So the idea of playing that Dungeons and Dragons game probably isn't quite as offensive anymore. So I remember uh, Henry being at I guess I was in seventh grade and I was a huge D and D nerd. I mean for me I, that was such a fantastic creative outlet for me. I would I would I would make dungeons like I, I would I would be I would be the DM guy and I loved reading modules but I wanted to make my own so I would make campaigns and dungeons and that was just like this wonderful format for me to pour this creativity into it. And I remember being at, every summer we would go to a a, a summer camp that was called Brook Hill. And I mainly went because they had like horseback riding and jet skis and they had a Sadie Hawkins thing where the girls have to chase the guys and kiss them on the cheek. And uh, I loved going to Brook Hill. But a side effect of it, and I ultimately didn't mind this, it was a super hardcore Jesus camp. Like all the little kids that went there would get saved and there'd be this weird sort of... uh crowd revival thing where you turn your life over to Jesus and everybody's weeping and I, I just it's this weird little like those? oh yeah once a year and I would go yeah and and I, I you know I, I would go and I would get caught up in this would and you I really and I, yeah sure and I would come back and I would be a, a little Jesus freak for like a week and then I would be a, I would totally lose it like it it totally it would catch on to me, but it would just sort of wash off after a while. It was almost I mean, like the dirt and sweat from being out there. What did sort you of, want to do? I mean, you come home and, like, what did you want to do? Well, I think a lot of those, uh, I think the purpose of those things are to bring kids into the fold, to sort of say, hey, you know, we're this community, and this defines us as a community, this love of Jesus and this idea that Jesus you know, this idea of, like, sin and redemption, these these Christian evangelical ideals. Uh, so you come to this camp. Obviously, your parents are somewhat sympathetic if they send you, which actually wasn't the case with me. My mom was a hippie. She didn't buy really? any of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
I, I actually knew about this camp through uh, my cousins uh, were counselors there, uh, and they had some affiliation with the camp. And you know, my more extended family is is more fundamentally Baptist in a way that my mother isn't. So I would go, go to this camp, and I would get caught up in this. And I would come home, and I would talk to my mom about Jesus for a week, and then I would just sort of lose interest in it. Uh, oh. So I, I think their whole purpose is, it, it, you know what, Henry, it's almost like they want it to go viral. These little kids come in, and there wasn't a lot of doctrine stuff. You know, that I think would have been off-putting. It's mainly bring these kids in, make them feel loved and accepted, and then give them this message and, and end with this really emotional bang, with this little revival thing where you turn your life over to Jesus. And I know that it can be portrayed as, as an ins- in a more insidious light, um, but I, I, well, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. But anyway, yeah, so I, I was a part of that for, you know, a week every year when I was a little kid. And you went on to study. I did, yes. I went on to study it partly because... Uh, I wasn't raised in any religious tradition. I, that certainly wasn't the tradition I was raised in. I would visit it once a week, mm-hmm. uh, and I was just fascinated by it. So once I mm-hmm. went to college and then graduate school, uh, it was sort of like I, I was just fascinated by the underpinning of, of this tradition and what drives it. And you, know. you wanted to be a priest? Oh, good Lord, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I would have just taught. My, my interest in religion was almost strictly academic. I, you know what, Henry, though, I would love to perpetuate the myth that I'm like a fallen priest or something. Like, you dropped out of medical school, I dropped out of the seminary. We're both bitter and disillusioned and kind of cool. For me, it was nothing like that. I was just no. going to teach. Okay. Uh, that, that's, that's the, the assumption has been made that you were going to be a, a priest you know, with aspirations of being an archdiocese or whatever, I don't know what they're called. Uh, and then something, something happened that that rocked your foundation. Yeah, let's perpetuate that. Let's say that I was in love with a Jewish woman, and it shamed the church, and we were both driven out of town, and she died in a horrible accident. And yeah, let's go with something like that. I like that. It definitely shaped you in terms of what your I mean, your beliefs. You know. Oh, sure, sure, absolutely, yeah. Well, you know, I, I mean, yeah, it, not in the sense that most people have themselves shaped by those beliefs, and that it, it, it wasn't, like I say, it wasn't a tradition that I was raised in. It was one that I would visit from time to time, and that I eventually ended up studying with a more academic uh, perspective. Um, but, but to sort of bring it around, what, what I want to tell you is that when I was there in seventh grade, I remember bringing my books for D&D and a bunch of my, uh, you know, the modules I was working on and the campaign I would made. And I remember one of the counselors there was a guy named Mickey. I loved him. Like, Mickey was like a really cool guy who I looked up to and I wanted to be like him and I wanted to be in whatever activities he was teaching. And, uh, you know, I got where he was the, like, cabin master for the cabin where I was. And I remember one night uh, as everyone's in bed and most people are, like, goofing around or hanging out, I'm, I'm in my bunk and I'm working on my, my module. And Mickey comes over. And he's like, hey, what are you working on? And I showed him, and I was so excited. I was like, oh, Mickey wants to see this. I can't wait to show him. And I so remember, Henry, how his face changed as I was showing it to him and how he eventually said, you know, you know, Tommy, that's satanic. That's, that's the work of the devil. You need to not do that. <laughs> wow. And the, the funny thing is, Henry, I didn't believe a word of it. I did not. At that moment, I sort of was like, wow, this Mickey guy is a fraud. <laughs> Uh, oh, you, go. you know one of the things that I always liked about um, uh, the uh, uh, you know the Christ- Christian beliefs, mm-hmm. uh, Catholic, 
Catholicism, you know, the concept of, of heaven and hell and these things. I mean, that, that just, I mean, uh, think about how, how great our, our horror movies are because of, because of those beliefs. I mean, it's <laughs> so much more interesting. I mean, you always notice that. It's always, I mean, you go watch uh, movies about that sort of thing, and it's about supernatural things. It's always, it's always you know, heaven and hell and, and, and uh, Jesus and demons. And, and you know, just, it's, it's, it's interesting. It makes for much better... Uh, Better movies, that's for sure. Well, you know, you say that, but they're also, like, consider, and I don't want to get too highfalutin here, so you'll have to stop me after a minute, but consider things like, like J-horror, Japanese horror, with its em- emphasis on ghosts. You know, they get their own things from their religious traditions. There's this idea of, in, in a lot of Asian culture, of, of, like, ancestral worship and ghosts living on, and that informs a lot of, like, Japanese horror. Absolutely. Uh-huh. And I, you know, I would be curious, like, what are... What are Indian horror movies like? Like the subcontinent. What What are Indian horror movies like? Do well, they even that, have them, or is Hinduism like too forgiving? Or what? Oh, I, I would have. Oh no! I mean, uh, oh gosh, I, I would feel bad to 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 try to remember. You know, it's it's not it's not Vishnu. It's uh, the other one. Shiva. <laughs> Shiva. Yes. I mean Shiva. What isn't Shiva holding uh, uh, blades and a severed head? I can't remember what. The, well, no, I guess you're right. It's those 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 creepy fanged, yeah. multi armed demons. Are yeah, yeah. Uh, so I mean, so many uh, you know religions have the concept of a heaven or paradise, and of course, to offset that, they always seem to have some kind of concept of something uh, uh, you know like a hell. It seems to me mm-hmm. a lot of them are guided that way, and so that that of course would lead that lends itself to, to horror as it is. One way or the other, but I don't know. I've never even. I'm sure Bollywood is cranking out horror films. I mean, it's one of the currencies of of modern film. You know, as, as much as I pride myself on like artsy foreign horror film knowledge, I I wouldn't have the first idea like what comes out of India. You know, they've got a huge film industry. Obviously, that's got to be part of the genre. Uh, so, real quick, what what tradition were you raised in, or were uh, you? Not not uh, not any uh, tradition at all. Uh, my I mean, my parents. I have to tell you, my parents uh, met. They were um, part of a, a traveling, uh, like a traveling theater group. Uh, <laughs> you know, like the Shakespearean theaters. Um, but it wasn't Shakespeare. But that's that's. I guess they did these things in the '60s, uh, and they they were they would play Vegas and Salt Lake City and Dallas, and uh, uh, they play in Kentucky. They, you know, they have six to ten spots they would travel and play for. Oh, oh, a couple weeks, and they would literally—I don't know—I guess they had these theaters. They would—they would get uh, uh, time in these theaters, and they would put on, you know, uh, productions. Like uh, I know my mom used to do. She was in the—they uh, did the Unsinkable Molly Brown. Uh, she was in that, and uh, a bunch of things like that. My father was the stage manager, and that was how they actually met at the University of Utah. They were both going there, and uh, both went on to do this sort of thing. And so they were very free-spirited. Uh, and there was no, uh, you know, uh, religious, any kind of really religion in my upbringing. I, I got most of my religion from my best friend, uh, who, who grew up on, on the same street as I did because he was, um, you know, they were, they were, they were Catholic. Mm-hmm. So I learned everything I knew about, about religion from him, essentially. Now, so you, you mentioned this, Henry, but I'm curious, how come none of this performer thing never rubbed off on you? You know, I... That's a good question. I'm not entirely certain. I think um, a lot of it had to do with maybe the fact that that my my you know my dad remained a stagehand on the strip until he, uh, Las Vegas Strip till he retired. You know that's all he ever did. My mom ended up going to work in one of the hotels, and 
was, they were divorced when I was very young. Uh, they were divorced when I was about two years old. Uh, so I grew up with my mom and, um, and, and her brother, my uncle, also worked in the, in the hotels. And that kind of the hotel life, um, which I ended up going into during college, it's, you know, it's a lot more pragmatic. Um, and I ended up, I don't know, I kind of, in college, I just ended up taking some science courses and ended up really, really liking them and ended up going in that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, uh, so what does your mom do now? She's not doing that anymore. Though, right? No, she's, she's, she's retired since then. You know, that, I guess that was part of it was um, I, I, wanted, I wanted to make sure I had a job that was secure and I didn't want to be a starving artist or writer, uh, even though it's not necessarily, uh, you know, bound and determined to happen. But uh, it's just ended up the way I ended up going. Mm-hmm. Uh, and your dad, obviously, being a stagehand, I guess he was a bit of a geek, too, to introduce you to Pong and stuff like that. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, he was a – that was that was my, my dad. Well, it was his friends or we would end up going there. And he was – you know, he was in the union. They have these – you know, everybody uh, – stagehands have a union. All these skilled workers have unions. So we go to these union parties where all these, you know, it's – crazy people running around with motorcycle helmets on and jumping off the roof and you know they make a lot of good you know, these guys make good money so they always had you know just about any toy you could imagine in their house that they love to play with because a lot of them were just overgrown children too <laughs> okay now speaking of overgrown children let's get back to video gaming okay uh the the game that you wanted to talk about is i'm assuming the games that you don't necessarily like which i'm fascinated by because most people when we do the podcast, they want to talk about a game they love. I'm assuming that the games that you've mentioned today, and we're going to start off talking about The Path, uh, mm-hmm. is a game that you don't like. Is that correct? I uh, ended up not liking it overall. That's correct. Now, to read what you've written, uh, I would almost say you loathe it. I don't know how much of that was for dramatic effect. Uh, the the issue with the game, and really what I wanted to talk about also in general was was... Uh, this I, I don't know if it's a genre unto itself or a subgenre of, of you know artistic games, um, which I, is a valid subgenre. I'd like to say that to begin with. I'm certainly not uh, putting that down. Like to say uh, people would put down the ability of games to be art uh, or any other type of medium to, to be considered art. I think it would, you would have to say that. You have to be able to say that there can be artistic games. There's art in games, but there are games that are artistic, just like there are with film. Uh, and, and other things. Uh, the issue that I have is that uh, I would like to see out of a game that is an art game. I mean, you have you have movies, you have art, you know, you have art house movies, and you you picture something in your mind when I when someone says art house movie, right? Mm-hmm. It's black and white. There's maybe two characters. It's really cheap. Uh, <laughs> you have no idea what's going on, and then you leave. And sometimes <laughs> they speak French, even though they're not from France, to make it seem more artsy. These kinds of things are kind of almost a you know, and, and they're hoping that maybe you'll derive some deeper meaning out of it. There's like a, it's kind of almost uh, sloppy, or you, you get an idea. It's not, it's not really a good film, you know. But there are there are artsy films that are good films. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, you know you, you're familiar with Marguerite uh, Duras or Dura, I believe is how her name is pronounced. She did Hiroshima Mon Amour, and uh, her most famous film, I guess, would be The Lover. Uh, and she's, you know, she's the thing with people. Jane March. Yes. Ooh, wow, I love that movie. <laughs> yeah. See, but th- there you go. It's a movie that a lot of people like, and it, but it's uh, – she had that kind of a – you know, that's kind of a more 
like there's some things about the film she does that make them kind of art. Her earlier works were certainly you you would think of a more of an art house style. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're films. I mean, they have stories and characters, and, and they have a they take advantage of the medium better than I think some films that are considered art films do. Okay. Uh, the similar thing applies here when you talk about games. And one of the reasons that I don't really like the path uh, there's 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 several reasons. I mean, I, I did enjoy playing it. Uh, the problem was when I just decided to sit down and think about it, and then certain tar- parts while I was playing. And the worst thing I ever did was go and read any interviews with the creator. <laughs> the tale of Tales um, with, with Michael Samian and Aria Harvey. Um, I'm sure they're very nice people. It's nothing against that, but uh, just you know, he they want to make. They're, they're very in love with the fact that they're making artsy games, and I guess that kind of bothers me. Uh, I don't know why. I mean, art, art, artists the world over, are, you know, can be very narcissistic and, and 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 proud of themselves for the work they do. So I don't think that really disqualifies them. But there's some things about the game. I just don't. I don't think it's a very good game. Okay. For starters, it's uh, you things you do in that game. Uh, and they said in an interview, a lot of things were just added to make the game kind of longer and and more annoying. Which, you know, that's just kind of. A difficult thing to kind of accept. I would like there to be a little more, uh, maybe something a little more deliberate about the way they created the game. Uh, it was spun off uh, kind of of an earlier game that they had called The Forest, right. which I couldn't imagine playing. It's where you just wander around in that forest forever or something. <laughs> there's there's no real point, and they're not big on points in their games and having a purpose, which I can understand that. Again, a lot of these things you can argue as being, well, that's because they're artistic. But, you know, you're making a game. I think there's some things you have to there's there's some things you have to be able to uh uh you know uh be able to do uh in making a game for it to be considered a good art game. And we're not just making art, we're making an art game. Uh so that's to be purpose. Uh there has to be some things that you expect out of a game and uh the path is kinda sloppy in that regard and they and the creators admit that they're sloppy with those sorts of things and you know the other thing is I just the material, the inspiration, you know, there, there's some interest in the Little Red Riding Hood story. Um, I understand where they came when they wanted to get the f- different phases of, you know, of a Little Red Riding Hood's life from being very young to being much older, and the big bad, how the big bad wolf appears at those stages of life. And I do appreciate what they did there, uh, but still, it's just kind of, you just kind of wander around, and then you kind of get to see, you know, the little thing happen. There's not much you can do about it. Then you wake up, and there's you know, after that thing happens, then you you there's another scene where you're presumably killed by the big bad wolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you go and you go into this big, this house where you're uh, killed again or something. Who knows, right? And it's you know, and it's very it's supposed to be uh, kind of scary or unsettling, and it's just kind of like you know, you just kind of moved your 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 art assets around so a, a chair is on the wall. That's it's kind of sloppy. Kind of didn't really resonate on the much. I mean, the the the, the foresty part of the game uh, is, is is very nice. Uh, the music is fantastic. Uh, Jarbo is the constructor and, uh, or, excuse me, um, the composer. Very good music, uh, used very well uh, in the game. And you know you've played it, so um, it, that that really helps set the mood. But you know they just there just didn't seem to be enough there. Plus they're kind of they're co-opting the little red writing with, and they don't. You do a little bit with it, but I'm not really satisfied with with all of what they did with it. Um, And I'm contrasting this and comparing uh, the things they do. And by the way, I I have to say, too, that all the other games that Telltales have made are are atrocious. Uh, They're they're, they're just just not good games. Uh, Their follow-up game was a very short game called Fatal, which, aside from being, you know, 
best probably only St. John the Baptist simulator. <laughs> that doesn't really have anything else going for it. Uh, it's, it's, it's short, it's, it's clumsy, it's kind of slapped together, and it doesn't really represent a, uh, uh, any kind of an evolution, you know, which is something you want to see out of, out of any game developer or out of someone who, who, who is saying that they're an artist. Artists evolve, I guess sometimes they may take step backwards to take big steps forward, but I haven't seen that out of them yet either, so it's kind of, it's hard to go. I mean, the game is a choice, like, I don't recommend anyone play it. Uh, now, uh, but before, before we move on, I want to, uh, uh, I wanted to send the path and see how you would react to that. But first, I want to ask you: Have you seen an iPhone app they did called? And I'm going to screw up the name. Yeah, it is Veritas. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen that? I have. I have. And, and so, how, what do you think of that? I, I think it's cute. Uh, it, it's. It, I don't have much to say beyond that. I don't think it really says anything. Um, it's a cute little game. I'm not surprised they made it. Uh, how, describe it for people who are listening who might not know it's what kinda, it is. Well, it's kind of like, um, uh, kind of like a, uh, I guess, I guess you. How do you describe that? I don't, I don't know. I, I'm going to say slot machine, but that's not fair. <laughs> you know what? Actually, Henry, that's not bad. No, it, that. By the way, that's so indicative of your experience that that's where exactly. you go. Slot machine, very nice. Uh, I think of it as the what's in the box game. Yeah. Uh, and the, the what's in the box line, everybody knows that from Seven. But that line also appears in the movie Barton Fink. It appears in Kiss Me Deadly. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a long tradition in cinema and storytelling and literature of a box with mysterious stuff in it. And Veritas is simply an iPhone app where you slide a lid up and three random items. They must have a library of maybe... I, I don't know, a hundred maybe? I don't know how many, but... They claim several thousand. I sincerely doubt it. I kind of doubt that, too, because <laughs> they're, they're not just little icons. They're little 3D objects built in the engine, and some of them are pretty elaborate. So some, a lot of art assets went into this for something where you just open a box and see three things. Um, but I think the point of it is, in a way, very similar to the point of the path, and even, I would say, similar to the point of something that I consider is kind of junk, and that's astrology. And I think the point is, if you show somebody a pattern or an image and you let them make sense of it, there can be value in that. I think astrology is ridiculous. Really? Yeah, I, I think there can be value in showing somebody a pattern and saying, here you go, make sense of it. You know, Make a story out of it. Make it relate to your life. And I think that is, on a very simple level... Uh, Veritas is is the, uh, sort of a pure uh, expression of that. Is you know what you open a lid, we're going to show you three things, and if you can maybe somehow relate or derive some meaning from that, great. And if not, this is not for you. And I think Veritas might actually be a free app right now. So when I got it, it was, yeah, it was like nine, I think it was a standard ninety nine cent thing. You could even download it for your computer now too. It's not. It's, There's it's, a PC it's, version of Veritas. How about yes. that? <laughs> Oh, I do have an iPhone, so I do. do have well, for me, it was such a perfect iPhone thing. You know, you're standing in line at the supermarket. It's like, oh, okay, I could, I could sit here and stare at the tabloids, or I could pull out my iPhone and see what's in the box. <laughs> uh, uh, it's very low obligation. You're not really committed like you would say with a game of Tetris or Solitaire, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, isn't that a little bit? I understand where your perspective on that, but but by the same token, it's a, it's kind of lazy too. It's kind of what well, the the. Michael and and Orius just sitting around saying, well, you know, let's add a skull, let's add a, you know, let's add a dagger. Oh, that'll be neat. I mean, it just, it's, it, if you're talking about uh, any kind of actual, uh, the effort put in uh, from the side of the artist, it's a little bit difficult for me to really 
you know, you're kind of putting it in uh, the hands of the person experiencing it, which, as you say, has some value. But by the same token, eh. well, let me well, throw this at you. Know. Couldn't you also say that, for instance, of Jackson Pollock? That it's kind of lazy for him, and I don't understand what he did, and I don't understand his value to the art world, but he is obviously regarded as, and in case you don't know, it's all this like abstract, just paint thrown at a canvas art, artwork. Jackson Pollock was, was famous for that. Uh, Very well, by the time. So you could say he was lazy. I mean, lazy is a, a sort of a way to put a value judgment spin on it, and I kind of agree with you, is that in that uh, the creators that tale of tales don't necessarily have to do the kind of work that people at BioWare or 2K Marin have to do. So in one sense, you could say they're lazy. But in another sense, you could also say they're not interested in giving you a a narrative. They give you the freedom to to do that on your own. And another way to say that, sure, can be they're lazy. Well, but we're going to talk about Jackson Pollock and, you know, Mm -hmm. everything he threw up on canvas, I did he just decide to sell, or did he was he he wasn't happy with it for his own reasons? I mean, he's he and, and any of those kind of modern artists, of course, are the, are the go-to you know example or analogy for this sort of thing. But uh, I have to imagine he spent some time. And there's some deliberation. There's some agreement among art experts of the value of his art, even though it's modern. Uh, well, let me ask: Do you then know? I mean, do you know? one way or the other, whether or not the people at Tale of... You actually can say their names out loud. I've, I've written the, the names um, many times, but I've never had to say them out loud. It's Michael and Arias? Yeah, Mark, Michael Samian, I believe is how it's pronounced, and Aria Harvey. Okay, very good. So do, do you know for a fact, and like, do you know if they've agonized over different iterations of what they've done? I mean, do, you, do like, I think lazy is... is uh, we don't know for sure. We don't know if it was difficult or easy for them. Uh, it's easy to it's easy for us to say it was lazy, but maybe they did agonize over it. Maybe there are iterations that they threw out. I don't know. Again, I guess it's the problem of reading interviews with them because reading these interviews, they, <laughs> they just sound so damn smug. I mean, they just sound <laughs> really happy about just just I don't know. No, I, I totally understand that, and I, I agree with you definitely there, Henry. I mean, you know, maybe the problem that I have is that they're just too happy. I mean, they did a YouTube <laughs> video where they're like. They're they're in bed, you know, with the, with you yes, know, yes. And, and, and ostensibly naked, and they you know they look very happy, a happy couple, you know, having a happy time making making these games, and I just you know aren't aren't artists supposed to be miserable? I mean, this is uh, there's, there's supposed to be some sort of uh, pain or something that kind of really drives them to create. Uh, maybe I just maybe I have an issue with the fact that they're just so happy about their <laughs> fair enough, they're more more upset, and that that kind of leads me to my comparison example. Um, uh, which are the games made by Ice Pick Law. Uh, okay, so right, right. I want to hear about those because I know nothing about them. But first, real quick, let me just give you my take on on the path. Oh, part yeah, of why I, I really like the path. Okay. The path to me, you, you, I agree it's not much of a game. And, and I think that that's obviously a part of the way it was designed. And I can completely understand that being off-putting. But for me, the analog for the path as an experience is uh, more like a horror film. Uh, and not a conventional horror film, not like a slasher. I mean, I talked before about how I'm a total wonk for, for, for like foreign horror films and artsy horror films. Oh, me too. Absolutely. And, and I think what good horror doesn't necessarily have to be coherent or c- complete. It doesn't necessarily have to make sense. Uh, a, a lot of good horror is about uncertainty, uh, is about what you can't know. Um, 
And, and the path, I think, kind of falls in that category. I, I'm reminded of uh, a weird Finnish horror film called Sauna, which uh, is not about like what we think of as a sauna nowadays. In fact, the, the movie takes place, I think, in the 12th century. And it's, okay. it's, it starts out being about border negotiations. And this, <laughs> this sounds like the most sleep-inducing, dreary subject matter for a game. But it starts out being about border negotiations between Finland and Russia after a war. And it ends up becoming this just dreamy, nightmarish, incoherent horror movie that makes no sense, but that's ultimately about guilt, about war. Okay. Uh, and I love that kind of thing. And I can see somebody watching it and, and having the same kinds of complaints that you might have about the path, calling it like sloppy or lazy or, or it makes it does certain things because they're annoying. Uh, there's, there's another uh, a Japanese horror movie called Pulse which was remade uh, as an American horror thing, I think with Sarah Michelle Gellar, and it was terrible. But the original Japanese movie, borderline incoherent, but, but very unsettling. Um, Audition, have you seen Audition? The, yes. That's another, like Audition is has a, the framework of a narrative, but there are things about Audition that I don't think really make a lot of sense, that are up to you to make sense out of them. Uh, so for me, the path works on that level, in that, Tale of Tales has put together shreds of powerful imagery, bits of I, what I feel are well-written kind of poetry, and they've stitched them together in a story where the framework is different stages of women coming to terms with death and sexuality. Uh, and a lot of that's my interpretation. You know, a lot of people think there's rape in this game, and, I, you know, whatever I I, I agree with you. Like, I think that that's in a way says more about like the outlook of the person looking at it than the game. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I'm fascinated at that. I think that right there, the fact that it, it calls this idea of rape from some people, I think in a way that makes it a successful game. Uh, mm. that, that it has that many different patterns that people can, can read into it. Uh, and while I agree it's not much of a game, I think it was a, a fascinating artistic endeavor. And I, I loved it, and in, in, in an irony, I did not want to write about it very much. I played it, and I was very moved by it, and I wanted to tell people about it on the, the blog that I write, but I actually wrote very little about the actual game because to me it was a weirdly personal experience that I felt like I didn't need to share in the same way that I would write about you know, uh, uh, any other game. Like, it's not Bioshock 2, it's not The Settlers, it's not End War, or, or Ruse, or, or Civilization 5. It, um, so, for those reasons, uh, I, I really, really admired the path. Uh, well, they, they definitely, I think they ended up making the game they wanted to make. Uh, it just, like you say, it has to, it goes a lot with if you're going to accept and be okay with the kind of game they made. Because they really just, you know, I guess the problem is, is there's no real, there's not many different ways to play the game. Yep. You just, I mean, the, the things that there are to play differently don't really count because they don't really affect much. Right. Um, there's no real effect. There's no real affecting the game at all. You you really just kind of push the buttons to 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 see what it has to show you. Um. So it's kind of, you know, it's just, that's my problem, is that there's an experience there. Um, a lot of it is up to whoever is experiencing for what they're going to take away with it. But there's, there's, it's still, it's not, still not much of a game. I agree. Not, yeah. That's the problem I have with it. It's, it's really not. It's, it's an interesting artistic experiment. 
And the thing is, like, games are still grappling with how to express these kinds of ideas, not necessarily the same ideas as in the past. So I admired seeing that take on it, and like you, I hope that they can kind of evolve past that and maybe make it fit more into what we expect from games. Um, But as a a point along video gaming's own path to to being more expressive, I I really admired what they tried. Uh, I I was really, I guess a lot of it was I was very disappointed to see that the things they've, they've done since haven't haven't uh, shown an evolution from that i mean you know you kind of go from something that shows a lot of promise to a t- just fatality yeah i know i was like what what's going on what is, really guys that's what you're gonna, okay <laughs> oh it's, ugh, it's painful to play uh and then uh, you know and a, a cute iphone game but still these guys should right. be moving on to something else well, now tie in these. You mentioned these Ice Pick Lodge games, uh, which I don't really know. Explain those to me and how they relate to the path and, and what you're saying about these arty games. Well, first of all, they have the best name of a game studio that I've ever heard of. Ice Pick Lodge is just fantastic. <laughs> but besides that, um, they are Russian, uh, which um, seriously shapes the way they make their games, uh, from what I've seen. Uh, their first uh, game. It was called Pathologic. Uh, took, uh, I believe, a few years before it was available for anyone in the States, um, which kind of shows it in the art assets. But that's, you know, it's adventure gaming. Who cares? Uh, but it's a first person. Um, and it has you, you, the setting is you're in this uh, very strange town, which sort of uh, there's a lot of references to being like a body uh, in a way. And you were there and you... There's, there's just so much. It, it's for one thing. It's definitely a game. You have quests. You have directives. You have things you have to achieve. You have resources. Um, you, you have a, a lot of things that you expect in a game. But uh, there's a lot uh, of interest to it. Um, one of the things is the that the translation's terrible. Uh, it's not. It's not that it's bad grammar, but it's uh, their translation is very. It's it's almost surreal. And actually ends up helping the game because. <laughs> Speaking these very oddly, overly awkward, flowery uh, phrases that you just have to stare at for a minute and figure out what. <laughs> um, but uh, the 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 feeling that they that they there's this just palpable feeling of dread builds throughout the game because things keep happening. I mean, the town, uh, the whole point of is to try to help solve this uh, uh, affliction, this disease that uh, it starts uh, taking over the town, and every day they have to, uh, you know, quarantine parts of the town. You have to try to make your way to these quarantines. You're uh, attacked by uh, the the disease itself or diseased people. There's just all the things you do. It's very unsettling. You know, is it combat stuff? Like, are you fighting people? There, there, There is some combat. You do, um, you know, you have uh, a gun. You have guns. Um, uh, combat's a little awkward, but it's there. It's it's not something you uh, seek out, you know. But you do have to defend yourself uh, at times. Actually, one of the interesting things about the game, and this is something that I know a lot of people uh, is a barrier for entry for the game. One, it, one, it's it's very difficult. You have to try to survive uh, for 12 game days. Which I, I mean, after by the time you get to day four, you're like, is this ever going to end? I can't believe I'm only a third of the way through this game. It's so excruciating um, because you're trying not to die of the disease. You're trying. You have to eat. Uh, so you have to buy food. Food is extremely expensive 
in the game. I mean, you, you, the thing is, you're you're better off not shooting people. You're better off hawking your gun for food, or 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 a variety of drugs that help you stave off uh, either the infection or there's also exhaustion. So you're kind of resource managing your your character, um, which people. I know can find very tedious, and you know, other people just can't stand the idea of, of uh, an exhaustion bar or having to maintain these things. But it, it ends up being, you know, a part of the game, and it just the game itself is just so surreal. It does a really good job of creating what it's trying to do. There's just very things, things that I can't even describe going on in the game, and, and um, this being their first game, um, the artistic side of it, maybe there's a little bit of uh, argument about that. Maybe it's really just a really weird Russian adventure game. Um, but there's their follow-up game. Uh, Real quick, so about Pathologic, yeah. does it is it a realistic-looking place? Are there stylized yeah. graphics? How I'm glad you mentioned that because I wanted to make that comparison. Uh, yeah, the town. I mean, the town has a, a definite feel to it, but uh, for the most part, there are just this, you know buildings with doors and windows and things that that are natural touchstones to reality. But then there are are, are bits and pieces in the game that are completely surreal uh, that they've blended in with the rest of the atmosphere, which, of course, just serves to make it even that more, uh, you know, kind of a, a surreal setup. But it, but it is very traditional in terms of, you know, you're, you're in a town. Uh, if, there's any, if there's any knock, I'll give the game that, that, that normal. Like you, you have to walk through the game endlessly. There's endless walking from one side of the, of the place to the other. There's no way to, uh, you know, mitigate that. Um, so you're walking up and down. You know, you'll, you get to learn a town like the back of your hand. <laughs> always traversing it. From one side to the other, going on quests, but uh, you know it's 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 set up just like any kind of small town you might find in a in a, in a well-designed uh, RPG, you know. Um, and does it have voice acting for the other characters? Is it a lot of text, written text? There, uh, there's there's quite a bit of written text. Um, the voice acting, the the only voice acting, is uh, when you select characters, they may something say something. Usually has nothing to do with what you're talking about. Um, one of my favorite things is when you die. Well, actually, not when you die, but you have objectives you have to meet before you're allowed to have the next day elapse in the next day. So if you fail, you go to a fail screen. And they didn't bother translating it or subtitling it. It's very, uh, it's just a bunch of very strange images uh, of people in, in animal masks. And it's, it's a Russian voice yells at you. Obviously, you've done something horribly wrong, uh, but there's no way you can tell what it is. And then all of a sudden, you're at the options screen to reload the game. <laughs> That's all you get. You have no idea what's going on. It's odd. Now, is there so something that, that I hear you describe this, and I'm like, wow, that's really cool. But the thing that I worry about, and without spoiling anything, I'd be curious what you say about this. Is there waiting at the end of this a, a decent payoff? Like, does it wrap up in a satisfying way? Do you, do you feel like it rewards you for getting through that, or is just getting through it a reward in and of itself? I have to tell you, the funny thing is I haven't finished the game yet. Okay. That, okay. It's because it's that difficult, and, and uh, I'm not sure. Uh, if it is or not, and I, I find that kind of interesting, is that I don't, I don't, I don't even know if I'll, if I survive all 12 days, that the end will even be, you know, maybe I'll just get another victory screen that's just, you know, uh, more non-translated, non-subtitled Russian, but the guy sounds a bit happier. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what I, what I have waiting for me. <laughs> How important is that to you, by the way? Like, is to, to me, if I feel like I've come through a story and it 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 sort of cops out or doesn't have a gratifying payoff, I, I kind of resent all the time I spent, and I I know. I can be very harsh towards the game if I feel the ending let me down, whereas other people are capable of just appreciating the experience and sort of segmenting the ending and saying, it's a great game, but it doesn't have a good ending. I, I can be real punishing about endings. How do you feel about that particular aspect? I, I can. I, 
maybe it's just from playing so many games um, just, uh, that I am more forgiving of it. Certainly more forgiving of it than than a, than a film that has a bad ending. Films with bad endings just, you know, that that really ruins a movie for me uh, when they do something. You know, like uh, the, the movie The Cell. If mm-hmm. you're familiar with The Cell. Yep. Yep. Uh, you know, great. Uh, I thought a really, really, really good movie. Uh, really good set. Really good premise. Terrible ending. Just terrible ending. It just completely ruins the entire thing for me. Now, why are you why are you more harsh towards the movie than the game in that regard? It's a good, it's a good question, and I, I can't uh, adequately answer that except to say that um, i just maybe I'm just more accustomed to it in games. That the ending that they present, you know, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you can you could get away with quite a bit. I mean, more modern games need to have better endings, but you know, we they just you know, hey. You're the king, or you know, like like, you can get away with that, and no one's gonna, ruin it. you know, the. Uh, but of course, I think to expect a little more, um, because. Uh, hold on one second. Okay. Hey, hey, are you here? Hold on one moment, okay. Can you let you in? <laughs> yeah. You're listening oh. to Bill Dungsman on the phone. He's guilty a phone call. <laughs> Sorry, I <laughs> That's okay, that was awesome. I think somebody she'll be here probably in another 20, 15, 20 minutes. Does she know that you're taping a dorky video gaming podcast? No, no clue. What <laughs> we won't tell her. <laughs> okay, thank you. I apologize for that, but um, uh, the thing is, uh, what was I talking about? Oh, so, I did, so, so for me, in a way, it's sort of like in a movie, I can be more forgiving of a bad ending because it was only 90 minutes. In a game, I feel like those 12 hours, by golly... I need some kind of payoff. Right. Uh, so in a way, I'm the opposite of you. I get what you're saying, but I'm, I'm totally the opposite. <laughs> now, so the, the follow-up after uh, Path Logic, it sounds like you wanted to talk about this. Yes. another game that they did. Uh, what, what Was this some Dark Voidy thing? What was it? It's called, the, it's called The Void. Actually, it's had a bunch of different names. It ended up being The Void, I believe, just for the U.S. release. It was also called Tension and Turger for a while. <laughs> Turger? Turger. I know, that's... Ooh, I'm glad someone intervened on Ice Pick. Wow. Terrible <laughs> for game. Um, but uh, the, this game, I mean, first of all, it's, it's hard to even tell that the same studio made the two games. They're very disparate. And, you know, some of the themes of death and things like this persist. But really, uh, I mean, the game takes place not in anything grounded in reality. It takes place in a, uh, what you would call some kind of purgatory or afterworld. Um a, you know, every you, everywhere you are in the game is surreal. A lot of it's actually drawn uh, or inspired by, um, you know, works of surreal art. Uh, you know, the, one of the greatest things I love about these guys, I speak Lodge, is, is uh, to develop the game. They left their studio and they they literally locked themselves in an abandoned mental hospital in Russia. <laughs> amazing. I mean, talk about being committed to their art. I mean, you know. Uh, these guys are just, I, I can't even explain how, that's just, how, what do you do with it? That's fantastic. They have to do something amazing. And, they, and I think they did. And, the, you know, I can't even, it's hard to even explain the void, what you're doing in the game. You're, you're, uh, you awake in uh, purgatory. You're, you're trying to escape. You need help from these sisters uh, who, you, who you also help, and they help you. And uh, when you talk to them, they, I mean, almost all of them are almost completely naked and very well rendered. But uh, so you speak with them and they dance for you, which is strange in itself. And you're avoiding the brothers, which are, they look a lot like, almost like um, 
uh, you know, the Cenobites from the Hellraiser movies or something similar, very, uh, you know, this very uh, uh, nightmarish design. Mm-hmm. And your character, one of the things you have to do is you, you actually harvest color from the world. Uh, and when you harvest it, you, it goes into one of your, uh, you have several different hearts, and the, you, the sisters give you your hearts that allow you to synthesize and turn the color into a certain type of colored energy that has different effects that you can cast as spells. So you're, re- you know, there's m- this. They've taken these amazing concepts of color and these surreal imagery, and they've applied game game mechanics to it. There's mm-hmm. resource management and resource harvesting. And one of the things you do in the game, you do in the game, is if you find uh, any trees, you can take color that you've already harvested, um, you put it back on the tree, and you can actually farm it later for more color to use. Because when you run out of color, you, you the game ends. You mm-hmm. lose. So you have to manage it, and you use it in a variety of ways to progress through the game. And it, it, it also is crushingly difficult. They actually had to release a patch uh, to make the game easier, which, you know, when, when you lock yourself in a mental hospital to make a game, and then someone's, you know, someone, you realize that gaming is a little too hard, it has to be pretty difficult. That's right. These All these casual lightweights at home just play in for 30 minutes and getting up whenever they want and doing other things, yeah. And you know, suffering for your art. And the game just says, really, the, the imagery... Is fantastic. Um, the, mu- the, the not just the music, but the way they use sound. I mean, uh, you know, there's part of the game. Whenever the brothers appear, um, this 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 cacophony uh, bursts in your speakers. It's, I mean, it's, it happened to me about maybe one in the morning when I first met <laughs> one in the game. It just scared me out of my socks. And then you know, just you'll be in some other part of the game, and then this something that sounds like an air raid siren will suddenly start blaring. And even though nothing even seems that I've noticed has happened, it just uh, you know it makes you panic. Uh, and they just did a really good job with the different kinds of things that you can put in a game to make people feel a certain way. And they really uh, pull you by. I get the feeling they really pull you by your nose to make you feel they want you to feel. I mean, there's an overwhelming sense of dread in both games um, and sense of uh, real urgency and danger. And uh, they do such a great job with it. And the, the, the visuals they're using are fantastic. They're new, they have a new game that's going to be coming out soon called Cargo. Uh, which makes even less sense. There are either games about something where you have to stop uh, the world from being torn apart by a pantheon of mysterious gods. You build contraptions out of junk littering the world, um, using color and song and dance numbers to to recover a a world-saving substance literally known only as fun or F-U-N, all the capitals. I don't know. It it's, doesn't make any sense. So who are these people? Are they are they from another studio in Russia? Are they a bunch of students who just made their own studio? Do you, do you know who these people are? They are. It, it's difficult for me to find information on them in English. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the best, you can go to, you know, uh, Rock, Paper, Shotgun has some stuff about them. They've talked to them several times. They're a very, they're very big fan of their games. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, they, you know, there's two main creator guys, uh, and they've, you know, they've, they've co-opted with other guys to do the art assets and to get things done. And that's the other thing. It's, it's two main guys. There's kind of just two people with tail tails, but these guys make extremely ambitious games that are games. You know, you, you play them and they are games. There's no question about it. Um, and a lot, especially with the void is figuring out what you're supposed to do. Uh, you know, which you can, you can liken that to the path. Uh, you know, playing the path is, is, is what you need to do with the game if you're going to play it because it's all about experiencing it. And the Void is very similar. Of course, the other part is there's really no penalty in, in the path. So right. you, you're allowed to play it. Uh, in the Void, there's, there's severe penalties. Uh, you, end up, uh, you have to be committed to being okay with reloading 
the game because even I, I imagine even on the easy setting it's difficult. It's, I mean, it's, it's again crushingly difficult. But, now you you have not locked yourself into an insane asylum, so I'm curious. <laughs> can you address like my particular concern about a payoff at the ending? Uh, do, do you know how or whether the path or not the path? How or whether the void has a payoff? I have. What I understand it again, I haven't finished this game either. Is that it does? Okay. Uh, but uh, you know, after what you have to go through to get there, it's hard to say. For someone like you, um, who rightfully expects a nice payoff, I don't know if you're going to get one uh, that would be sufficient. I just don't know. I mean, these Russian guys, who knows what it is? You know, <laughs> we should. I don't. Who knows? They should just. You know, you should be happy that you made it. What, what do you want? You know, a, a, a marching band? I don't know. These guys are just so. That's what I, what I love about them. They're just so odd. They're so Russian. Is the void easy to get? Is it something you can just grab on Steam or? Uh, it is now available on Steam. It was not easy to get when I first got it. Um, either of the games because I wanted to get them as soon as they were available. I had to go through, uh, you know, I had to go search some back alleys to get a hold of the game and pray that you know credit my, my <laughs> account was it going to get you know, hacked or cannibalized? For <laughs> You're gonna find the Russian mob or something. <laughs> uh, do you know how far off cargo is? Uh, I don't. Uh, well, actually, they say it's due by the end of this year, but we, we know how close we are to the end of the year. And plus, being due out in terms of their games uh, may not necessarily mean that it's available for us to get in the States. Uh, right, right. You know what I mean? So uh, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not expecting to play it until next spring at the earliest. Right. Uh, now, before uh, – so I, good – wow, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm very psyched to hear about these. Uh, I, I'm now my question is – and I have to, you can't answer this for me, is should I try this void thing or should I hold out for cargo? Uh, but, uh, so, I don't know. Boy, I don't know. It's hard, these games are so hard to recommend to people. Um, I mean, you know, you have, you, have, you have friends that, I mean, there are movies you just cannot recommend to a right. lot of people. And that's not to say that you're that kind of person who wouldn't, but it's, the games are kind of a commitment. You have to be prepared to start over. Um, uh, you have to understand what's happening in the game to know, uh, you know, unfortunately the games, uh, they expect that you'll be re- reloading it and using knowledge you've already gained to, to do better earlier to survive. Um, I think you would, I think you would like the void. I would recommend the void even out of not having, uh, obviously having played or been exposed to cargo in its finished state. I think you personally would enjoy the void more out of any of their games. Okay. Good to know. Good. Uh, no, I know you have impending company. Yeah, I do. Uh, but before that happens, I have to. I don't know if you n- knew you were in for this. I have to ask you a completely random question that has nothing to do with what we've talked about. You go right ahead. And actually, I say that, but it kind of does. I might know the answer to this already. Okay, if someone had made a clone of you, Henry, yes, what little detail about you? would discern you from the clone. You know, like in a movie where it's like, oh, he had a little wart right there or something. That's not the real one. If there was a clone of you, what detail would distinguish you from that clone? Wow. Wow, that is some question. Uh, I just, I get to choose one? Uh, Yeah. Just just any? I mean, even since we've talked, I'm like, is it, the gap, in, well, the gap in your teeth would be too obvious, but like that, yeah, like where where are you going to, what's the, what would it be? Uh, I don't know. Maybe that I'm left-handed and the clone would be right-handed, something like that. Or, 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 uh, oh boy, that one works. Well, here you go. Here's kind of what I'm thinking because I have, it's. I guess it's a birthmark, but it's this very slightly discolored part on my left inside wrist 
that oh. it just looks like a coffee stain, and it would be so easy to miss. You have to look at it under bright light, and it's, it's my birthmark, and you can barely tell it. Uh, is there anything like that on you? Uh, well, I, my, append- my appendix ruptured when I was younger, and I had a scar from that being removed. That's a little obvious, I guess, but... Uh... No, that would work. Like if there was a movie about finding the real Henry and the clone Henry, I could see that. Because I've had that uh, surgery in my mouth, there's a giant scar. You know, I don't have a frenulum, and there's a scar running up through there and through the roof of my mouth. I could just lift my lip up and you. Ah, right. Very good. You know what? I like I like that one. Good. Okay. All right. So I don't know how I'm going to phrase this. I, that's an awfully long, weird question to ask. So I'm somehow <laughs> going to squeeze that into a subject header and everything else. For those of you listening, oh, post in that thread, and you'll go into a drawing for a free game. Henry, you're in the drawing already. However, you have to. Those of you listening, you have to answer the question, and you have to sign your post with your name, which a lot of people on the forum don't do. So to qualify, you have to answer the question, sign the post with your name. Henry, you're already in the drawing. You might get a free game out of the deal. That's uh-huh. And there you go. So, uh, all right. Well, wow. I, I'm, I won't ask you about what you're going to be doing later tonight. <laughs> Can I say one thing too, Tom? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I know I speak for a lot of people and we're really grateful that you decided to continue doing these, not just for having me on, but for all the other people that have been looking forward to doing it and people that uh, appreciated the ones that have gone so far. So uh, I would like to say thank you for that. Well, I, I really do appreciate that. And I just want to say, I, I, you know, a lot of times I am only checking the forum a couple of times, and I'm not really up on what's going on. And so when I get sucked in, it's just a bunch of drama, stupid stuff, and that's all I see of the forum. And I'm like, oh, this place sucks. Running a, running a forum, I understand uh, that that is what happens. But, uh, you know, a lot of people that really appreciate and like the place, so. And I really was, yeah, it was, like I said when we first started, it was really heartening to hear people talk about that. And I, a lot of times, don't get to see that, and that's my own shortcoming. Yeah. So I was so glad to hear about that, and I look forward to doing more of these. So. Okay. okay. All right. Well, Henry, thank you so much, uh, and we will be seeing you around uh, on the forum. All right. Thank you. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye.